Live from York, this is The Late Show with Christopher Valves. Good evening and welcome. Tonight we're talking about the Ofsted English Subject Review with English teacher Mary Hind-Portley. So join us as we explore the key highlights of the review and reactions to it, the review's stance on reading and the four domains of literature study. As always, we're here to take your calls, so call and text in and join the conversation. Live from York, this is The Late Show with Christopher Vowles on Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live at ttradio.org or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Hello everyone and welcome to the Sunday Late Show. If you've now broken up for the holiday, then well done. It's certainly been a busy time for everyone, not least for the reception staff at the Department for Education. Since we last spoke, we have moved on to our second Secretary of State for Education after Nadim Zahawi. That's right, James cleverly becomes the 80th government minister to take up the education brief first established under Viscount Palmerston's Whig administration in 1857, when William Cooper spent one year and 16 days in the grandly named position of Vice President of the Committee of the Council of Education. Educated at Eton before entering the Horse Guards, Cooper, later known as Cooper Temple, was a key figure in the development of the 1870 Education Act. Now, as I'm sure the educational historians amongst us will know, this legislation created the school boards that assumed responsibility in England and Wales for the universal education of children aged between five and 13, and for building new schools where they were needed to complement existing state-aided and church voluntary schools. The Act established a framework for the inspection of schools to monitor capacity and to maintain educational standards. It made provision for funding schools from taxation, although parents were still required to pay school fees if able to do so. It introduced powers for school boards to make attendance compulsory, and it required that all religious teaching in board schools be non-denominational, an amendment to the bill laid in Parliament by William Cooper Temple himself. Two years later, on the 6th of August 1872, so 150 years ago next month, the Education Scotland Act of 1872 had an even more dramatic impact on schooling north of the border. This legislation immediately made elementary education compulsory for all between the ages of five and 13. And the locally elected school boards created by the Act immediately took over all existing parish and burgh schools. The Free Church of Scotland surrendered 548 schools to the state without compensation in what Alexander Morgan in 1927 described as the state taking the place of the church 
as the official agent of education. In 2022, Mr Cleverley and his ministerial team now only have England to worry about, but they still remain responsible for early years, children's social care, teacher recruitment and retention, the national curriculum, school improvement, academies and free schools, further education, apprenticeship and skills, higher education, oversight of the departmental COVID-19 response, and oversight of school infrastructure improvement. Quite a list. Responsibility for education in Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland, of course, rests with the devolved administrations in Edinburgh, Cardiff and Belfast. Like his Victorian forebear, William Cooper Temple, Mr Cleverley is a privately educated military man. Having attended Colf School in Lee before Thames Valley University and being commissioned into the Territorial Army in 1993. His most recently recorded reserve service has been with the Royal Artillery Regiment. It will certainly be interesting to see how many communications are fired off from the DfE under his watch, beyond guidance to state schools on implementing the unbudgeted round of staff pay awards for 2022-23, and advice on managing behaviour. I strongly suspect Mr Cleverley will be moving to another portfolio by September once a new Prime Minister has appointed a fresh cabinet. Will Michelle Donnellan get a second crack as Education Secretary to put into practice the plans drawn up during her 36 hours in the hot seat earlier this month. She has, it should be remembered, served as Parliamentary Undersecretary for Children, Minister of State for Universities and Minister of State for Higher and Further Education since entering Parliament in 2015. Having supported the now eliminated Penny Mordaunt in the semi-finals of the Conservative Party's leadership contest, Ms Donnellan has yet to publicly back either of the remaining candidates. Will she return to the Cabinet by September? Or will Suella Braverman be directing England's education policy come the start of the new academic year? Whoever is overseeing schools this summer needs to urgently look at the goings-on at AQA. It has been reported that a 72-hour strike of administrative staff is imminent, although AQA have assured schools that any industrial action will not affect the processing of public examination results. The trouble doesn't end there, though. Hundreds of teachers marking exams for AQA this month have voiced their frustrations over errors in processing payments for work completed, with non-payment and late payment of fees, over-taxation and unwanted pension deductions being experienced by teachers supporting the national examination system in their spare time. Countless markers have reported their challenges in getting answers from anyone responsible for payroll matters on the telephone while receiving a stream of abrupt reminder emails about marking completion, constant updates to marking advice and frequent error messages from unstable assessment software. This summer clearly opened with a shortage of experienced examiners, 
By April, I was receiving nearly weekly flyers by post and by email to sign up to gain valuable insights into the examining of English by scrolling through short answer question after short answer question on a laptop screen for GCSE English language. I was even encouraged to refer a friend. I think it's high time that AQA had a really hard look at how it works with the teaching professionals it relies on to sustain the public examination system and start treating them a little better than it has of late. I am personally very relieved that I chose not to do any exam marking this year. Despite my genuine interest in how exams work and the multiplicity of creative ways in which students attempt to answer the questions set before them, I came to the conclusion that a fortnightly, a fortnight long on-screen marking binge was not the most rewarding way to engage with the subject and the wider teaching community. So instead, I finished teaching in early July and took myself down to London to attend the Idler Festival at the National Trust's Fenton House in Hampstead. Here, on a spectacularly sunny weekend, during what would have been considered a notable heat wave in its own right, had the weather patterns of the last week not brought record high temperatures and garden fires, I spent some time generating nonsense poetry in the drawing room of a Georgian country house with the poet Claire Pollard and a group of fellow sun-dodging seekers after gibberish. It was nice to be able to sit at the back of the class for a change to have a go at some timed writing exercises drawn straight from the Dadaist playbook and to hear someone else asking the close reading questions about the Jabberwocky. I also made a small zine for the first time since about 1986, putting together a manifesto on the importance of reading from a blizzard of art school, coffee table magazines, pages torn from the London A to Z and scraps of wrapping paper. I was sharing the same craft table as a retired resident of Hampstead who was keen to impress, express her long-standing interest in nature and a young editor for the medical journal The Lancet who put together a manifesto urging the reversal of recent US Supreme Court ruling on the Roe versus Wade case. There was some time for some Blue Skies stuff too. The radical economist Kai Standing delivered an intriguing lecture on the disappearance of the commons. That public property formerly held jointly and severally by everyone in society for the enjoyment and benefit of all, which began to vanish with the field enclosures of the early agricultural revolution. Standing was setting out his concerns for the oceans, arguing that these are rapidly becoming commandeered by corporate interests and private finance to the detriment of local people. I also enjoyed Dr. David Bramwell's close analysis of Tova Johansson's book, Moominland Midwinter, and the evolution of Janssen's now famous hippo-like creatures from their original forms as ghost-like presences in darkened corners of the artist's childhood sketchbooks. My daughter and I are currently reading Moomin Papa at Sea, the final melancholic instalment in the Moomin family saga, a book that is as much about leaving youth behind as it is about the trying to make sense of a world shaped by mysterious grown-ups. Tonight, 
we are going to explore Ofsted's recently published view on what constitutes a good English curriculum in English schools. No doubt originally intended for publication in 2021 to mark the centenary of the discipline defining Newbold report into the teaching of English from primary age through to university or industrial placement. The Ofsted subject review of English has met with a mixed response from the subject community. Like the 1921 Newbold report did after World War I, it offers a fascinating perspective on where the report's authors think English stands as a subject discipline seeking to engage with the modern world. It sets out a view on how the differences between English as a discipline and as a vehicle for other learning might be understood. It presents a summary of research findings into a range of teaching methods used by English professionals. It offers suggestions as to how particular skills and knowledge might be developed. And it offers observations on the role of assessment in measuring learning and driving it. So what does the review mean for you in your classroom? Does it present a portrait of a subject that you recognise from your training to teach? And what new questions does it pose about the nature of English teaching and learning in the 21st century? Mary Hine Portley and I will take up some of these threads in our conversation this evening, but we would like to hear from you too. So do please call or text us live and join the conversation right after this. This episode of Teachers Talk Radio has been made possible with support from Witherslack Group, the UK's leading provider of SEN education and care. They're here to support you too through an ever-growing offer of free resources, including webinars, podcasts, articles and events aimed at supporting teaching professionals like you. Visit their website at www.witherslackgroup.co.uk to find out more. Imagine a world where you were free to focus on sparking curiosity in your students and giving them access to the awe and wonder of learning. A world where you were supported to deliver a truly personalised education to help all your learners achieve their potential. No need to imagine it, because that's exactly what the Oxford Smart Curriculum Service delivers. Seamlessly integrating curriculum, resources, assessment, next steps and professional development Every component of Oxford Smart is connected and working to provide you with a uniquely coherent and responsive service that empowers you and your students with transformational effect. The Oxford Smart Curriculum Service. When everything connects, anything is possible. If you have a passion for education and a talent for teaching and learning, the Witherslack Group want to hear from you. Join them as they open an incredible new school in Essex and be a founding teacher of English, Maths, Science or Primary with multiple leadership opportunities available too. As Teachers Talk Radio partners, we know how much they care about the well-being of staff and their offer to you will be superb. To find out more and apply for a role, visit www.withaslackgroup.co.uk forward slash careers. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News. 
Several media outlets report on a 72-hour walkout planned by staff at exam board AQA, which could affect the delivery of GCSE and A-level results. The walkout was announced by Unison in a row over pay, with the union saying staff are struggling to make ends meet because of successive below-inflation pay awards. Employees set to strike include those involved in organising the awarding of grades for both GCSE and A-level exams. The three-day action will take place from Friday the 29th to Sunday the 31st of July. Unison warns that industrial action could escalate unless talks reopen. The Manchester Evening News reports on comments made by the Conservative leader on Bury Council as he launched an attack on teachers, rail workers and junior doctors who may consider striking for better pay. Russell Bernstein, opposition leader on the council, said, shame on any teacher who takes strike action and suggested those who did would be ignoring their responsibilities. He criticised possible strike action at a time when children and young people had finally begun to think about having a normal school year, after two years of disruption due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Labour councillors for Bury dismissed his comments as childish and out of touch. With many schools breaking up today, regional news outlets are providing parents and carers with details of activities on offer this summer. In Essex, the council is encouraging people to think outside the car and features activities which can easily be reached by bike, on foot or using public transport. In Islington, the council's Heatwave summer programme offers free, fun, educational activities for all ages, including Caribbean cooking, poetry, filmmaking, roller skating, special effects makeup and animal care. Whilst in Stoke-on-Trent, the Pottery Shopping Centre is opening an indoor beach complete with deck chairs just in time for the summer holidays. The beach is free of charge and open to anyone. A check of local council and media outlets is a good place to start for ideas this summer. From today onwards, UK degrees will be recognised as the equivalent to degrees from universities in India. The Government of India signed a Memorandum of Understanding with the UK Government, which will allow those taking a degree in the UK to be eligible for employment in India. Those with Indian university degrees will be also treated on a par with UK degree holders and eligible for jobs in the UK too. It is hoped the arrangement will bring a much needed boost to the UK economy. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio Weekend News with Joe Fox. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, this week I'm going to support a question everyone will see at the start of next year. It goes something like this. Hi Edu Twitter, can you reply with where you are so I can show my class how far a post on the internet can reach? With a bit of free tech, you can make this much more visual. I'm going to use Google Maps because it's free and most likely you'll have used Google Maps at some point in the past. So, when you have all your responses, sign into Google. Go to Maps and click on the menu next to the search box. That's the three lines that look like a burger. From the menu, select My Places. You'll now have four options. Lists, Labeled, Visited and Maps. Click on Maps and at the bottom select Create Map. Now you can give the map a title so you can find it next year for comparison and add all the places from your Twitter replies. Simply type the name of the place. When it appears with a blue point marker, you can click the plus sign to add it to the map and then select the colour to help it stand out. When you've finished, all places will be saved and you can access the map by following the first few steps. Menu, My Places, Maps. There are loads of other great tools to use also. Measure the distance from your school to those places, 
hit preview and go into the view only mode. Here you can select a place and you treat it to a short bio and an image of the area. So next time you're looking to bring a lesson to life, why not try using maps to help pupils see where places are in the world? Do you have any top tips for mapping? Why not get in touch at TC Radio 2022? Follow us and tell us what you want to know about tech. I'm Steve Woods and that was Two Minute Tech. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Welcome back to our show on the Ofsted English Subject Review. Joining us tonight from Liverpool to examine what the review might mean for English teaching is Mary Hine Portley. Mary has had a variety of roles in education, teacher, director of English and school improvement. She is co-author of the book Succeeding as an English Teacher, published by Bloomsbury, and is currently assistant English subject leader in a multi-academy trust in Bootle. She has recently been helping shape a new approach to whole school reading so that all students might know that reading, to paraphrase Kate D. Camillo, is not presented to children as a chore or duty, but as a gift. And I'm delighted to say that we have Mary on the line now. Welcome to the show, Mary, and thank you for joining us on Teachers Talk Radio. Okay, while Mary's going off to sort out um, a second set of headphones, we'll see if we can just explore some of the uh, key details, I think, from the Ofsted report. So for those people who have not yet read the review in its entirety, I'll just outline the five key points that secondary teachers will want to be familiar with. So these are one, that phonics still governs language acquisition in the primary phase. Uh, two, reading is central to teaching and learning. Three, explicit SPAG teaching during composition lessons is endorsed. Four, speaking and listening opportunities should be made frequently available to all. And five, Ofsted's model of literature teaching distinguishes between four domains within the subject. So those are the five significant points that came out of our reading of the English subject report. Now, it's fair to say that the response to the review itself has been rather mixed. I understand that the English and Media Centre have put out a significantly lengthy response to the original wording of the review. Uh, the English Association have also had something to say about it. And we'll try and see if we can get Mary back with us. Mary, are you able to come back onto the line with us now? Let's try again. Hi, can you hear me? Good evening. Me? Hi, can you hear me now? Perfect. We can, oh, yes, we can hear you loud and clear. Uh, it's, I think I've bought new headphones and I don't think they've got a mic on them, which didn't help. Ah, <laughs> I'm okay. here now. So we're <laughs> now old in. headphones. <laughs> Perfect. So the old headphones may well do the job. So I've just explained <laughs> to listeners, Mary, about the, yep. the five key points that came out of certainly my reading of the English subject review. 
Um, yeah. I understand that you've been exploring the English and Media Centre's response to the review. What do I they have. have to say about it? I have, and it's been very interesting. They take a very, a very, they have a very specific view, as we often know from the English and Media Centre. They're very clear on um, their approach to English, which is excellent for us. Uh, we might not always agree with it, but they are very clear. So they've gone through the report in quite a lot of detail. And they've made a point for each aspect of the report. They introduce it with a blurb and they talk about, you know, one of the things they say is worryingly, the report barely touches on some key areas of the subject and does not even dip a toe into the research that's available on pedagogy and practices related to them. And they pick out the things that the report doesn't cover, such as poetry and media and creative writing. Um, the first point they pick out, which is interesting in terms of the, where the report starts, where the report looks at the importance of foundational knowledge and talks about the difference between the modalities and also the pedagogies, um, the English and Media Centre look at the false separation of pedagogy and curriculum. I don't know whether that's something you'd like me to talk a little bit more about from what they've said. Yeah, that'd be interesting to explore. What do we mean by those two things? Um, well, they talk about here, um, the Ofsted report states there's a risk that planning for English teaching ends up focusing on using modalities, pedagogy, at the expense of identifying the foundational knowledge of language that pupils need for comprehension or communication. But what the English Media Centre look at is they say, well, um, obviously we need to give explicit teaching time to do explicit teaching of each of the forms of verbal communication. And they talk about the knowing how to and the knowing about, which is very popular at the moment in looking at the way, looking at the curriculum. But they do talk about whether there is a confusion here, that there's a very simplistic version, uh, a very simplistic view with the relationship between knowing how to and knowing about. And I think they worry that um, there isn't a clear idea of what, what what is meant by pedagogy and what is meant by curriculum in the report. Yeah, I mean, it, we don't really get much of a sense of what the curriculum is in the report beyond um, the four basics of reading, writing, speaking, listening. I would agree with you. And I think that's where the um, English Media Centre um, put forward their point of view, um, because they then go on to talk about um, it says that the document starts to tie itself in knots by trying to make a clear division between the two. And I, I agree with it. I think that um, as the Ofsted re re subject review tries to outline what it means by foundational knowledge, I think it gets itself very confused about what we might mean by knowledge in English other than the knowledge of language, etc. Whereas um, here, the English Media Centre talk about if a student completes a writing by their teacher, they may well draw on an explicit feature of writing discussed, but they will also draw on much more besides. In doing so, particularly if the writing is a focused audience and purpose, they will be reinforcing their understanding of how to write by doing. Additional reflection about their language choices, particularly in conversation with their teacher and the students will help this process. Uh, but it's never an exact science, as made clear by Marshall and William and they, in 2006. So I think that, they, that the English and Media Centre are quite concerned about what we might need, mean by foundational knowledge in a curriculum and what we mean by the modalities, the fact we do use reading and writing and speaking in order to engage with the English curriculum itself. Yeah, so a, 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 complex, mm. a complex web of things to unpick, really. I would agree. 
And if we look at the English Association's response too, theirs was, um, well, they, they largely agree with some of the things that were said by the English Media Centre. Yes. Um, their, their criticisms, I, I managed to narrow them down to five in the end. Um, they were particularly worried about the review's approach to English as a single unified discipline. Yes. And that's quite interesting to me because if we think about it, you know, we have English literature and English language currently in England as two discrete GCSEs, although Wales is shortly due to introduce a single combined English language and English literature GCSE to make space for Welsh. Yes. And at A-level in England, we have three different varieties of English at present. Anyway, English literature, English language, and the hybrid language and literature qualification. And that's before we even consider the place of media studies in English. So, yeah, I've, I've got concerns about the degree to which this subject review applies to a subject as discreetly varied as some parts of the English family are. The second thing they picked out was the sense that Ofsted's review favours a transmission model of classroom teaching. The worry being that this will tend towards scripted teaching. I get the sense that perhaps the English and Media Centre have a similar view on that. Yes, um, one of the things that the English and Media Centre do come out quite strongly against is this idea of um, the upfront teaching of knowledge so that students can access texts. I mean, I have my own opinions about that and about how knowledge is important, but there is a, a heavy emphasis on on knowledge in the subject review. But it, when we when you look through it, we look through the review, I think what com- becomes clear, well, not clear actually, is the, the review's own understanding of what they mean by knowledge they do talk about. You know, it doesn't necessarily mean that um, contextual knowledge should be taught uh, up front and explicitly at all times. But I think there is a confusion in the report about how we might approach the teaching of certain aspects of knowledge linked to a context of a text. Um, whereas the English and Media Centre do um, do pick out this emphasis on knowledge and talk about it as being something which can be quite limiting or quite disengaging for some students. Uh, point eight on their response where they talk about foundational knowledge is linked to the advice to structure text almost solely in terms of increasing complexity are numerous references to foundational knowledge. This is knowledge needed in order for further learning to take place. The absence of research related specifically to English, as opposed to more generic research on learning, means that this is presented in a highly simplistic way, assuming that language learning, reading comprehension, writing and learning about texts take place in a linear, logical fashion. And that was one of my, uh, my arguments with the subject review, that it did seem to present a view of English being linear and logical, well, it does have its own logic, but our encounters with English are not necessarily linear like they may be in maths. So that's something I think it's really worth English departments considering when they're looking at their own um, curriculum and they're looking at what implications the subject review has for them. Have your department had any thoughts about it at this early stage? Um, we haven't at the moment because we've been sort of taken up with um, exam preparation and, and post-COVID, but you know, the discussion in in our department has been very much about what do our young people need? 
and what's our own view as a as individuals and as a department of what we what we mean by our subject and we're very committed to the power of reading as which is a whole school fo focus as well but we also want our students to engage in a rich diet of, of different kinds of writing and also being able to explore their ideas critically um, through being able to write critically and engage with text where they can be um, critical consumers of it rather than just passive um, and I, I fear that the subject review doesn't lend itself to the richness of different English curricula that we have around in the depart different departments in in the country. Yeah, I mean, and I, picking up on your um, explanation of the English Media Centre's position on that, again, mm. in that description, we get the kind of bouncing between the seemingly natural bouncing between English language skills and disciplines and mm. English literature skills and mm. disciplines. And again, I think that is a significant challenge that the English review doesn't quite come to terms with. In terms of the text choice too, I mean, there seems to be seemingly contradictory guidance on how you might go about choosing set texts and the justification for delivering them. That's certainly what the English Association picked out. Yes, and um, just looking through the, so the English and Media Centre talk about in point of their uh, response of reading and reading comprehension and narrow, narrow focus, um, which is not specifically about the text, but is about the, the emphasis on reading comprehension in the, in the review, which we can come to later. But there, um, there is a very strange um, leap between teaching uh, the curious incident of the dog in the nighttime as a preparatory text for then exploring the yellow wallpaper linked by the concept of the unreliable narrator and that's picked up by them and also by um i think it was um uh, ucl as well the institute of education at ucl uh, picking out that as a, a slightly strange example of of how you might sequence a text my interpretation of the subject review is that that they seem to think that you can plot a, a, an enc encounters with a series of texts over the curriculum that's logical and linear whereas there is we can look at some linearity between texts but i don't think that supports a rich and broad as well as deep curriculum that we want our young people to experience i think that necessarily we revisit texts or we circle back at times or we look at a topic that we might look in year seven but come back to it later in perhaps a different form so it does worry me about this, this, this focus on linearity and increasing complexity of text where we know that complexity comes in many different forms in terms of reading. Well, that's certainly true of the learning journeys that I've witnessed my students embark upon over the last 15 or so years. There was something in there too, wasn't there, about the progression in oral English and that there should be some kind of almost linear progression in that particular skill across all of the key stages too. That's going to be surely a challenge to deliver in many English classrooms. I think so, because I'm, it starts off with the early English curriculum in schools, which I wouldn't want to comment on because I think that's definitely the an area for an early years specialist to talk about. But it talks about the importance of high quality spoken language in early years, which I do agree with. And then it 
then later on it comes back to looking at spoken language as a separate section in the report and talks about a curriculum for spoken language of you of you said it references a number of interesting people such as robin alexander and neil mercer and um christine howe um but and it talks about dialogue dialogic talk but i do feel that then it doesn't really help us to think about how we might develop spoken language because developing spoken language is messy it comes with the encounters you have with the students in the classroom the ways that children respond and the text um fiction or non-fiction that you use so i think it's very hard to plot like a linear and logical development with that there is a focus on standard english as well in the in the report too yeah in terms of the spoken language though i was just thinking that it does seem rather perverse to uh, set a new standard essentially for a progressive spoken mm. curriculum when it moves towards a terminal examination in which that skill will count for zero percent of the final grade it's absolutely interesting you say that because that's one of the things i've made talked in my notes and we've just done our recordings for year 10 and we know that you know that we've had some absolutely excellent presentations but we know that the young people who we serve come from disadvantaged backgrounds and often uh, quality of talk isn't always supported and developed at home and we've got a big job to do there and also working with our primary colleagues as well who do an amazing job um but it does seem ironic there's a, a significant emphasis on spoken language when as you say we're not assessing it in an appropriate way at the end of the gcse it doesn't allow pupils to show their range of abilities in different types of encounters with spoken language such as group discussion exploratory talk as well as formal presentations it predicates one particular form of talk which is a formal presentation but when that's worth nothing it's you know we we, we make sure with the students get a quality experience of preparing for that but it doesn't make it seem the central part of the english curriculum when it's a past merit or distinction and it's actually worth no marks at all as you've just said I didn't catch the last bit of you. You broke sorry, up there a little bit. Sorry. Um, you know, when you get to the end of it and the students have worked incredibly hard on their presentations and it's not, it doesn't affect their overall GCSE grade. It's a very small P, M or D next to their, on their, on their certificate or on their summary of GCSE results. And um, whether employers take that seriously or not, who knows? Yeah, it certainly does seem strange, doesn't it? I mean, if we think of modern foreign languages, then speaking yes. listening is quite a significant proportion of the final assessment it's almost again like we decided that english isn't really a proper language because most of the students that take the exams are native speakers yeah and it doesn't allow it doesn't give our young people the chance to develop their skills and we know that when we look at reports from the cbi etc that employers are looking for that wide range of skills group talk group presentation mediating community decision collective decision making that um there isn't a process for us to explore those or reward those in school quite as much and you know just looking reflecting just looking at the headings in the report when i go back go back through it it talks about the summary it talks about a curriculum then it talks about teaching activities and one of the things that i found quite hard about the research review is almost that it doesn't seem to know what its job is I don't know whether you agree with that, Christopher. My sense is that um, it comes back to me, for mm -hmm. me, to the mm -hmm. the kind of problem that English has in being these 
two disciplines that aren't really quite two disciplines. Yes. It's kind of English language and the English literature approach. So, yeah, there's there's plenty of advice in the report on how to seemingly teach the mechanics of writing. Yeah. And how to teach the nuts and bolts on a level of sentences, but then somewhat less guidance on how to put it all together, which is what ultimately I think we want people to do. I guess it, it lacks a sense of cohesiveness and coherence that if you're sitting with this report alongside the national curriculum thinking, what might we change about our curriculum or if we we're going to rewrite our curriculum from scratch, it seems to be quite a piecemeal set of ideas that don't lend, even though it talks about progression, that don't actually lend themselves to a, a, a curriculum built on progression, if you followed all the advice in the report. Yeah, although it certainly says, doesn't it, that the progression shouldn't be interpreted as competence in tasks set for exam over time. Mm. Seems to be that's what it's implying from my reading yeah. of it. And of course, we get this sudden um, rocket out of nowhere, the invention seemingly in this document of four domains of literature study for the purposes of the review itself, a view of um, the subject that's baffled subject experts already. Yeah, well, it's interesting when I was going through and and, and looking at the uh, just let's check the number, the two hundred and eighty six footnotes in the report. Um, when I was looking at the footnote for that, it comes from. Let me go through the turn through the pages. Um, yeah, it talks about the four domains, um, but that is based on a book that's aimed at the sixteen to nineteen. Uh, teachers um teaching English literature a book which is uh, which has been recommended by a number of people and people I know who are teaching a level do use it with Carol Atherton and just looking for the other authors um Caroline particularly who I do respect as a as a um, as a teacher and uh, and a critic um but it's very much applied to that post 16 teaching of English literature which I don't think suits us in terms of thinking about you know the curriculum at key stage three to four which is where most teachers will find themselves focusing and, and planning their curriculum. I do yeah, find there's, it... there's, that, there's that significantly bigger open space, isn't there, at Key Stage 3? I suppose your choices at Key Stage 4 and 5 are largely determined by the exam syllabus you follow. Yes, I've just found it in here, and it's footnote 230. So just go find the, find the actual footnote with the document, because the book that it comes from, I think, is one that is, is really helpful for anyone teaching post-16. post, post 16. It's, yeah, Teaching English Literature 16 to 19 by Routledge in 2013. The authors are C. Atherton, A. Green and G. Snapper. Whereas uh, uh, with the way the place is situated in the report under literary, literature and literary knowledge seems to imply that that's something we should be thinking about, as we've talked about in Key Stage 3 and Key Stage 4, which doesn't fit with the national curriculum or perhaps how we might want to construct our curriculum particularly as it starts with the history and development of literature, which is very hard to do when you're planning a three-year curriculum and then moving on to the two years at GCSE where what you're going to teach is dictated to you by the exam board. Mm. Certainly, and where the set text might change for literature, you might want to then reorganise your historical approach to literature lower down the school, but you may not Absolutely. have enough notice. Uh, and, and we have put a lot of time into thinking about um, how, our, how do our young people understand 
like the Western literary tradition in our department? What do they need to know? What gives them access um, to a wider cultural understanding, which helps them to access the texts we're in? But what we're not doing is we're not teaching the history of English. We're trying to embed it in the genres or texts or movements that we're teaching in the curriculum. Whereas when you're teaching it, you know, depending on the exam board, you're teaching it at um, Key Stage 5, the history and development of English could be very, very important and central to how you approach a text. Um, mm. I've taught AQA Lit B with the focus on genre. And obviously you do need to understand the development of tragedy over time. Other exam boards I couldn't speak about, but, you know, it's all about, it, it's making sure that you're looking at something which is right for the phase planting it in your curriculum. Yeah, there's certainly there's certainly an argument to be had, I think, about the place of literary history in GCSE, Key Stage 3, mm. uh, English curricula, certainly within schools. I mean, mm. English literary history is a kind of dying phenomenon in universities now these days. Oh, it's quite definitely. difficult to find an English literary history degree. <laughs> yes. Um, I mean, having done my degree a very, very long time ago, the big thing for us was new historicism and cultural materialism at the time, which I did enjoy reading about, but that's not something that you hear quite as much about now, um, which has certainly helped me think about teaching Shakespeare, for example. But um, I think the those four domains, I think, could be unnecessarily used perhaps by um, maybe senior leaders to say to, to, to have conversations about the curriculum well where are these four domains in your curriculum along with your implementation statements and your intent and and subject leaders saying well that's not appropriate for key stage three and four yes we are looking at those at key stage five but they're not something we want to structure our curriculum around for key stage three and four i think they're good to talk about and interesting when you're having those conversations about developing your curriculum but i can see them being taken out of context and perhaps used as a tick list mm. so that's the thing there's certainly that risk we'll we'll return to those four domains after the news, Mary. Um, yes. The National Association of English Teachers' Criticisms have been a little more muted, but even they were disappointed by the lack of reference to media study, drama yes. and digital literacy. Yeah. Like the English Association and others, they had some doubts about the robustness of Ofsted's evidence base. But where do we go from here, Mary? Surely we can all agree that reading is a central feature of any English curriculum. Absolutely. How do you manage reading in your school? Um, in terms of reading, reading is central to our school. We have um, an ex a fantastic VP who's led on the implementation of reading is power across the whole school. We've been fortunate enough to to work alongside her and and support this in development. And in our department, we talk a lot about the importance of reading because we have a number of students entering you know, who's, who are not reading at their chronological ages. We've got a number of students with um, a difference of two years between their chronological age and their reading age, you know, that their reading age is lower than their chronological age. So for us, the teaching of reading is really important, but we know that the teaching of reading is a complex science as well as an art. And it's a very important for us to think about how do we do this, but also how do we build on what they've learned at primary and how do we build on our primary colleagues expertise in the teaching of reading yeah one wonders how we might integrate the learning of vocabulary as well as yeah. we attempt to 
give students that confidence and capacity to read fluently? Um, because we know there's a link between the vocabulary that students have, their expressive and their receptive vocabulary, as well as you know they've been able to decode and understand vocabulary in reading. And we know that the wider the vocabulary have a student has, the more likely they are to succeed at GCSE and the more likely they are to be good at reading. Um, but it's a fine balance, isn't it, of trying to build a curriculum that develops vocabulary when encounters vocabulary can be quite random depending on the text that you're using um, but also the fundamentals perhaps for some students of going back to decoding and there's a big emphasis like we discussed preparing for this about the teaching of phonics and where the teaching of phonics sits perhaps within a secondary curriculum or whether that's an appropriate uh, emphasis in some of the inspections that we've seen recently but for me, the teaching of reading is alongside the selection of texts and how you put those together in a coherent and cohesive manner. And that's something I think we'll look at again after the news, Mary. So we'll go to the news now and then we'll pick up this idea of what literature might be as a subject, according to our own views, <laughs> and those of those of Ofsted. So we'll be right back shortly. Thank you. This episode of Teachers Talk Radio has been made possible with support from Witherslack Group, the UK's leading provider of SEN education and care. They're here to support you too through an ever-growing offer of free resources, including webinars, podcasts, articles and events aimed at supporting teaching professionals like you. Visit their website at www.witherslackgroup.co.uk to find out more. Imagine a world where you were free to focus on sparking curiosity in your students and giving them access to the awe and wonder of learning. A world where you were supported to deliver a truly personalised education to help all your learners achieve their potential. No need to imagine it, because that's exactly what the Oxford Smart Curriculum Service delivers. Seamlessly integrating curriculum, resources, assessment, next steps and professional development Every component of Oxford Smart is connected and working to provide you with a uniquely coherent and responsive service that empowers you and your students with transformational effect. The Oxford Smart Curriculum Service. When everything connects, anything is possible. If you have a passion for education and a talent for teaching and learning, the Witherslack Group want to hear from you. Join them as they open an incredible new school in Essex and be a founding teacher of English, Maths, Science or Primary with multiple leadership opportunities available too. As Teachers Talk Radio partners, we know how much they care about the well-being of staff and their offer to you will be superb. To find out more and apply for a role, visit www.withaslackgroup.co.uk forward slash careers. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News. Several media outlets report on a 72-hour walkout planned by staff at exam board AQA, which could affect the delivery of GCSE and A-level results. The walkout was announced by Unison in a row over pay, 
with the union saying staff are struggling to make ends meet because of successive below inflation pay awards. Employees set to strike include those involved in organising the awarding of grades for both GCSE and A-level exams. The three-day action will take place from Friday the 29th to Sunday the 31st of July. Unison warns that industrial action could escalate unless talks reopen. The Manchester Evening News reports on comments made by the Conservative leader on Bury Council as he launched an attack on teachers, rail workers and junior doctors who may consider striking for better pay. Russell Bernstein, opposition leader on the council, said, shame on any teacher who takes strike action, and suggested those who did would be ignoring their responsibilities. He criticised possible strike action at a time when children and young people had finally begun to think about having a normal school year, after two years of disruption due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Labour councillors for Bury dismissed his comments as childish and out of touch. With many schools breaking up today, regional news outlets are providing parents and carers with details of activities on offer this summer. In Essex, the council is encouraging people to think outside the car and features activities which can easily be reached by bike, on foot or using public transport. In Islington, the council's Heatwave summer programme offers free, fun, educational activities for all ages, including Caribbean cooking, poetry, filmmaking, roller skating, special effects makeup and animal care. Whilst in Stoke-on-Trent, the Pottery Shopping Centre is opening an indoor beach, complete with deck chairs, just in time for the summer holidays. The beach is free of charge and open to anyone. A check of local council and media outlets is a good place to start for ideas this summer. From today onwards, UK degrees will be recognised as the equivalent to degrees from universities in India. The Government of India signed a Memorandum of Understanding with the UK Government, which will allow those taking a degree in the UK to be eligible for employment in India. Those with Indian university degrees will be also treated on a par with UK degree holders and eligible for jobs in the UK too. It is hoped the arrangement will bring a much needed boost to the UK economy. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio Weekend News with Joe Fox. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, this week I'm going to support a question everyone will see at the start of next year. It goes something like this. Hi EduTwitter, can you reply with where you are so I can show my class how far a post on the internet can reach? With a bit of free tech, you can make this much more visual. I'm going to use Google Maps because it's free and most likely you'll have used Google Maps at some point in the past. So, when you have all your responses, sign into Google, Go to Maps and click on the menu next to the search box. That's the three lines that look like a burger. From the menu, select My Places. You'll now have four options. Lists, Labeled, Visited and Maps. Click on Maps and at the bottom select Create Map. Now you can give the map a title so you can find it next year for comparison and add all the places from your Twitter replies. Simply type the name of the place. When it appears with a blue point marker, you can click the plus sign to add it to the map and then select the colour to help it stand out. When you've finished, all places will be saved and you can access the map by following the first few steps. Menu, My Places, Maps. There are loads of other great tools to use also. Measure the distance from your school to those places. Hit Preview and go into the View Only mode. Here you can select the place and you're treated to a short bio and an image of the area. So next time you're looking to bring a lesson to life, why not try using maps to help pupils see where places are in the world? 
Do you have any top tips for mapping? Why not get in touch at TC Radio 2022? Follow us and tell us what you want to know about tech. I'm Steve Woods, and that was Two Minute Tech. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. You've been listening. Welcome back. I'm discussing the recent Ofsted English subject review with teacher and assistant English subject leader Mary Hind Portley. We've just been discussing the highlights of the review and how weeding might be managed in the context of the review's recommendations. And we'd love to hear your thoughts on the subject as we move on to explore what the review has to say about literature teaching. Had you ever heard of the four domains of literature study before they appeared in the Ofsted review? How does one best balance the benefits of teaching whole texts with those that stem from the study of extracts? And what literature knowledge is genuinely thought of as knowledge of the text, as opposed to background knowledge? So let's start with the four domains of literature. Now, Ofsted defines these as one, the history and development of literature, two, the craft of the writer, three, the response of the reader, and four, the nature of literary study. So Mary, are these anything more than a framework for the drafting of examination assessment objectives, or have Ofsted come close to finally resolving the what is literature question? Are you still with me, Mary? Can you hear me, Mary? I can hear you, yes. Perfect, you're on now. Sorry. Um, so <laughs> did you have a view on those those four areas? Well, as somebody who's taught um, English literature at, at A-level, I do find them very interesting. And as somebody who likes to think about what we're moving our some of our pupils towards depending on which on uh, which um different schools that we're working you know i'd like to see as many as my young people as possible choose an a-level subject in english or another a-level subject um i do think they're useful domains for us to think about and we're looking at the curriculum but um you know obviously if we're in a state school um we are duty bound to deliver the national curriculum or in a map in the national curriculum or something which we can plan to be better um, and i think as well there's a lot of discussion at the moment about increasing complexity and what that might be and at times bringing things down from perhaps post 16 study that may be inappropriately challenged for young people like the race to uh, introduce more and more challenging texts into key stage two so if we think about um the response of the reader we can bring in some perhaps critical theory about reader response theory um but i think it's important first and foremost to think about what are we trying to teach our young people in key stage three and what do they need um pupils do need to understand the craft of the writer and how a text is constructed um and we need we need to teach them about that but i think that those domains are perhaps a level which may add too much complexity for us planning the curriculum and too much confusion um, when they are essentially taken from a book which is about teaching literature 16 to 19. Yeah there is the there is the problem isn't there of stuff being pushed 
further and further, further down, down the curriculum. So how do you go about organising your key stage three reading curriculum? Um, in terms of our reading curriculum, we've got, um, this is something we've been discussing. I've been at my school for a year now and um, we've been discussing what that looks like. And we've made a number of changes this year and we'll probably go on making changes until we get close to something that we feel that is as right as we can make it, but also adapting to, to tech new texts as they've come out. So one of the things we've talked about is the balance of 19th century texts, which, you know, are specified in the national curriculum in terms of the, the, the different time periods from which we teach, um, the importance of modern writing that young people need to be exposed to. And also that the decolonizing the curriculum has been important to us um, and looking at diversity in writing so that our curriculum is truly reflective of modern society. Um, and also going back to, you know, reading is essentially about pleasure. It is essentially about, you know, finding yourself in a different world which transports you from where you are or helps you to understand the world that you're in. So those have some, been some of the areas that we've talked about. The nineteenth century issue is is quite a big one and quite an important mm, one, I think. It is. I How agree. early do you start to prepare your students with nineteenth century stuff? Because in my school, I have students yeah. come in from all over the world, yes. um, some of whom who've never experienced any Victorian literature to speak of, or even any English literature to speak of in their home countries, to be parachuted into year 10 or year 11 to then have to sit a language exam that requires them to know about 19th century boarding schools <laughs> or um, the traditions of wearing hats in the street seems yeah. to me a bit a bit much it is i think i think when we, when we look at the english curriculum is being centered in 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 english schools and you know you were uh, you earlier referred to like the number of reports we've had over time right from right from the Neil Bolt report and, and earlier is, you know, we know that we are coming through, you know, from university study years and years ago, that, that it, that the 19th century novel has been held up as the center of, of perhaps our literary um, curriculum. Um, it's obviously still considered important because it's, it's a set, a set area to be assessed on in um, English GCSEs, uh, English literature GCSEs, we have to have a 19th century text in there. Um, so, you know, obviously there's a lot of pleasure in reading a 19th century text and understanding that aspect of history. So for us, it's been a discussion about, do we put that in year seven? We previously had Oliver Twist, but we've moved that out. Um, but we're thinking of focusing on in year seven towards the end on perhaps, um, either a novella or an extended short story at the moment we're just discussing hg wells's time machine for a number of reasons that it introduces not just a, not just a 19th century um piece of writing but also the science fiction genre and how interesting that would be um we teach a christmas carol at gcse so we want the students to be ready to to access that but we don't want to make it a dickens heaven heavy curriculum I think the other issue with a lot of the 19th century novels is length and the time we have in the curriculum to teach those alongside the vast breadth of literature that we'd like to expose our young people to. Yeah, the, the challenge of how you manage to get through everything in the time is mm. is a big one when you're dealing with 19th century stuff. And in terms mm. of the 19th century poetry, romantic poetry, do you get to look at that? 
Uh, we do. Um, obviously, that's part of our anthology. We teach Educas in our school and we've got a group of the romantic poets in there, which we want our students to be able to access and understand. So currently we've, we've worked on a unit in year nine on the romantics, which has been quite successful. We know we want to make some changes to it because we don't want it just to be seen as GCSE. We want to make sure students understand the true nature of the romantics and also that, that as as a collective term that's a, a retrospective labeling and that each poet during that time period is very different you know we want i want to look really more at the lake poets versus or the other poets and look at shelley and, and byron together um so we do introduce that um i also want students we look at the different types of poetry that the romantic i'm using my air quotes here the romantic poets write is that it, it includes a variety of forms and we you we earlier talked about knowledge and what knowledge was and and context and for me part of knowledge and context is understanding where literary forms originate so one of the things that we've introduced earlier this year is um that we've just finished teaching is a unit on sonnets for year seven because we know that the sonnet form is is quite fundamental to aspects of shakespeare but also to some of the poets then that we later study at GCSE, we want students to understand the significance of form as a part of English literary history as well. So we do want to teach the Romantics, but we also want to look at how perhaps the Romantics have influenced other poets later on. Yeah, I suppose Romanticism is again one of those particular topics where you could go very, very deep, very, very early. Mm and lose quite a lot as a consequence of doing yes. so. So the romantic unit we teach um, is part of a unit we call Monsters and Machines, which combines well, the really teaching of <laughs> combines the teaching of the Industrial Revolution, because that yeah. doesn't really happen on our history curriculum anymore. Yeah. At key stage three, with the teaching of extracts from um, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein in a very, very abridged form. Yes. And then we look at a maybe six, seven poems about the town and countryside. We look yeah. at uh, Robert Burns' Address to Edinburgh, which is actually my favourite Burns poem, not least because it's in relatively conventional English for him. <laughs> bit of Wordsworth, bit of yeah. Keats, bit of Byron, bit of Shelley. Um, and I think that's probably enough to give them a sense of what was going on and what people were annoyed. Oh, William Blake, of course, as well. Absolutely. What, what people were annoyed about and what was going on at the time. It's very, very difficult to uh, misinterpret a Blake poem, it seems to me. I would agree with you. And I think it's interesting, isn't it? I think the richness of our subject is that the infinite possibilities of combinations of poems and texts and nonfiction. And I think that's, what some, that's something that, you know, has always made me enjoy teaching English because uh you know everything you can teach romantics one year and introduce something slightly different or change the focus but substantially deal with with that as a period of literary history if we go back to Atherton's you know four domains the history and development of literature that we know that there are some stages that are are key to students understanding how poetry or or novels have changed over time and you you mentioned uh, Frankenstein, which for me, I think is a key text. And I, we want to make sure that um, female writers are fully represented in the curriculum. You know, we had a conversation in school about the dominance of dead white, dead white European men and, and how we deal with that. Um, so one of the things that we've looked at as well is linking. We do a we've 
introduced a study of the Gothic at the start of year eight, which is which our students responded really well to. They were really engaged by it. Um, and I use the term engagement cautiously because of what it means to some people. But it was something that the students avidly talked about in our pupil voice. We know we need to refine it a bit, but we want to I want to be able to, the, to understand the link between the Gothic and the romantics and the interplay of the writers that were involved with that. And uh, I think it is a genre and a period of literary history that you can introduce in Key Stage 3 to, uh, to develop the students' ability to read. It pulls out some really quite interesting things, teaching Gothic actually at Key Stage 3. Yeah. Although the slightly amusing thing from my perspective is that, of course, at the time these novels were being written, it was a highly disreputable genre. So much it so was. that many of the authors were ashamed to put their names on the title pages. Absolutely. And I think sometimes we do need a little bit of the disreputable in the English curriculum because we can be very proper. And I think it's important that students understand that, that not that things that we see now as being part of um, literary history and part of the canon, actually, at the beginning, were not were not seen as, as central or important or respectable. I think that's really important that they see that. And it makes me wonder, too, what um, contemporary texts you might be teaching that at the moment are borderline disreputable <laughs> that might be appearing on <laughs> Ofsted subject reports of the future. Uh, I don't know. That's a hard one to answer. I mean, certainly, I would say for perhaps one of the things that I think is really important is the increase in diversity and perhaps the discussion around, you know, sexuality and gender as well, which, you know, um, it's been certainly something we've discussed in our school and and how we are fully representative across all aspects of diversity you know in introducing one of the texts that we that we're going to trial um as our wider reading our form time reading is alex in wonderland which is a text that's quite new to me but we want to make sure that um you know all of our young people and their experiences are represented and you know you could look back under section 28 several maybe 20 years ago where that wouldn't have been acceptable at all and I think it's really important that you know we deal with those texts and 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 show young people that you know they matter in all forms. That's an interesting point isn't it it takes us back to the the wording of the review itself mm. about the reasons for which teachers might make textual choices Yes, and we need to look beyond I think the history and development of literature and possibly the craft of the writer too, to mm. the fact that these texts mean something more broadly in the world. Absolutely, I would agree with you, you know, um, and we think about the, you know, the texts at the time and some of, you know, we look at Dickens as a social critic and, you know, we look at, you know, we've already talked about some of the Gothic te texts being disreputable and challenging and, and delving into areas of sexuality that wasn't, that, that weren't approved in, in Victorian society. And I think it's really important that we, that we do think about why we're we choosing that text and who does it represent and what does it what does it bring to our young people to include them in reading you know because not all children automatically respond with pleasure to reading texts and 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 lots of young people feel excluded from the things that they they you know from the text that we choose we want children to understand i think that all texts are for them um no matter how complex or simple um but, but we you know it's a it's a balance isn't it all the time about at the time that we have and 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 the choices that we make certainly is i remember having um various uh, discussions with people over the years about our school uh, teaching anglo-saxon and old english in year seven yes 
Um, when when you sometimes speak to people and say, well, our students are studying Anglo-Saxon and Old English in year seven, they ask you why you're studying anything so irrelevant. And you say to them, well, actually, have you not considered that year seven students quite like writing about monsters and heroes? And if we're teaching them a relatively straightforward version of uh, Beowulf, followed by yes. a bit of the seafarer and the wanderer, and then making up their own riddles, that sounds exactly a year seven's cup of tea to me. Absolutely. And when, and when in the number of conversations that I've had with um, some of the pupils that I teach, where I've referenced something and they referred to a, a game that they've played and said, oh, Nemesis, well, that's in such a game, miss, isn't it? So they, so they bring an understanding from their cultural experiences to understanding, to, to help them to understand the literature. And when we look at the narratology of gaming, I think it's really important that we make those connections. And um, the first unit that uh, our young people study in year seven is the origins of stories. And we look at, you know, the development of the Western canon from Greek literature, but also going back to Gilgamesh. And I, I am, you know, I, I think that teaching them about Gilgamesh is really important. And some people might say, but why? And they say, well, it's the foundation of literature and it's from, you know, it's from a different part of the world. And students need to understand where stories came from and the pattern of stories. I'm a big fan of um, Christopher Booker's Seven Basic Plots. That mm. I think that for me unravels quite, the, the the relationships between texts and i'm a big a big fan of teaching pupils patterns you know the, the the deep schema and say well you know we might watch superman or we might watch you know stranger things um but actually let's look at that story that's relevant right back to this it follows this pattern so all stories are built on the stories that precede them and and i think that teaching beowulf is or chaucer is really important because it is a part of our heritage or for some people that's saying well how might this link to um the place that you've come from in terms of the ancient stories that that that, that you that you want that you know um and we know that stories you know writers link back to chaucer and then we've built on that and i think it's very important that students see that takes us back to the four domains again doesn't it, it the does, second yes. one being the craft of the writer, the writer yeah following the conventions you expect or suddenly surprising you by not doing so mm. and then the response of the reader the ability to pick up on those signals being transmitted by the text i suppose mm. how good um, are your students now at picking up the transmitted conventions of the gothic I think it's early days for us, but um, certainly when we asked them to write in the style of, we could see those, we could see conventions and tropes coming through. And, you know, when we think about the craft of the writer, I think it also links back to other aspects of the review and the national curriculum as well, in terms of the teaching of grammar and sentence construction. Because one of the things that we looked at closely in the unit was how are people described? How are scenes set up you know what are the um conventions of um setting and whether we talked about meteorological and um the, the two other words escape me now because it's, it's it's a sunday and it's the start of the holidays um but we you know we're teaching them very explicitly about these are the patterns we also talked about how is this built up you know let's look at the noun phrases let's look at the epithets and then teaching those very explicit grammatical aspects of construction so that they can confidently construct their own texts. I mean, that's very much a work in progress and we're still unpicking 
the explicit teaching, the explicit but contextualised teaching of grammar in the work that we're trying to do because we know it's important that students see how things are constructed because otherwise students don't don't necessarily understand the shape of sentences and then can't write accurately because they're confused about where perhaps um, commas go in a, in a, in a multi-clausal sentence or how you might use a semicolon, for example. So those are things that you know, we've been considering quite a lot alongside, you know, rooting it in a robust study of, of a particular genre. Certainly interesting you mentioned the semicolon because that's that's changed quite a bit since Anne Radcliffe's time <laughs> and even Thomas Hardy's time actually. Absolutely but um, but we know that when we look at the mark scheme for writing at GCSE that the variety of punctuation in, and helping students use a semicolon could be could 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 change them a mark uh, you know a mark band perhaps or two or three marks on the vocabulary sentence structure and punctuation so you know it does matter. <laughs> Certainly does, which is why I'm so slightly surprised by, again, the wording of the subject review suggesting yeah. that students should be uh, dissuaded from following kind of writing frames or yes. templates in any kind of way. Mm. The exam format itself does tend to lend itself towards the templatization of responses often, particularly I'm thinking of those descriptive writing tasks on the English language uh, paper one it is with AQA. Yeah, I, I would agree with you that, and certainly, you know, we know that when we teach Educast that there's a convention, there's a narrative convention that they promote and it's our duty to teach young people that convention so they can be successful. You know, we know we sat down and we talked about, well, the way that they write an exam is not necessarily how we would want them to write a, their own short story or a novel. But our duty to young people is to is to get is to get them the highest grade possible in their exam. So part of part of key stage four teaching for me is what does the exam want us to do, and can we teach you to do that alongside other aspects? You know that I think we can we can focus on the exam specification as the curriculum, but we know that the curriculum is wider than that. It's just a balance of the time that we have, but. Um, you know, writers follow conventions and always have. You see, you see writers borrowing from one another. You see writers following patterns, and I, I think that for some young people, the scaffolds and the writing frames and the writing in the style of help them to become much more confident writers. So I think it's very important. Yeah, again, it's about giving them the bricks to work with to build their own creations, isn't it? Mm. Um, you know, there are a number of a number of, of writers who are prominent on social media who talk about, oh, I was not taught this, or I didn't need that. But actually, they're people who have got the tools and can break, you know, break the rules as well. Whereas a lot of our young people need to be taught those tools and how to use them. And they need to start with following patterns like we would do with nursery rhymes in early years to make them successful and confident in writing because not all of us are going to be award-winning novelists or poets but we there's only a limited our, number of awards <laughs> there's only a limited number of awards um you know ourselves and have and i suppose on a serious yeah. on a serious point for a moment there's actually a diminishing number of yes. awards available now for children's yeah, writing the um, blue peter one has gone hasn't it and the um WH Smith's that, one went some time ago. So, yeah, and I think that's a real shame considering that we're in a time of an absolute wealth of richness in terms of children's literature. It, it seems really sad, you know, that we must fight for that recognition for those authors. 
certainly does. I have to say from our conversation so far, Mary, that I'm mm -hmm. certainly warming towards these these four domains of literature as they're set out in the report. I just wonder how much of a surprise these will be to colleagues who are in teacher training institutions to suddenly find these new terms yeah. presented to um, them. I think it, I think it very much depends on on who you speak to. I mean, I know a couple of people who are in ITT, and um, I know that they will be well versed in what the reporters as as said. But um, I do think there's a I think there's a, a gap between what some people might be doing, and then some, perhaps some visiting tutors and things between how the knowledge knowledge filters down. But I think it's always about how something is interpreted or summarised. And the form in which, say, uh, 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 someone who's starting their PGCE in September, how that might be presented to them. And I think it's our job as teachers in the profession to support those 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 new teachers to say, well, this is actually what it means, or this is how we interpret it, or this is the the wider or richer view of it. I mean, I, you know, as we've talked about it and interrogated them, you know, they do seem logical, and they, they certainly they actually do come from you know, a, mm. a commitment and an understanding of the richness of literature. I think it's just, it's it's interesting. And I go back to what I've said about the structure of the report and what the report is trying to do is, it's excellent, but I would much rather have had that in a kind of um, reflection or um, this, is, this is the research review. Now, a, a, a discussion part for de, a discussion part for de, for departments might be then to look at this this four domains and how might you use that in terms of planning your curriculum. I do struggle with with what the report has tried to do, the research review, and I think it it's very different from a literature review, from the literature reviews that that I've read, in terms of the structure. It seems to to at times think it's showing us the research that's out there but at times it seems to be directing us to a particular way of teaching um with and, and i think the language that it used you know teachers can teachers must teachers should there's a strong kind of mo sense of modal verbs throughout this about it directing us towards a particular way of teaching mm -hmm. perhaps rather than saying this piece of research shows us x how might that be useful to us in school? I do struggle with the way the, re the research review has been written, if I'm honest. I'm just thinking about the fourth domain, which we haven't really explored explicitly, I suppose, which is the nature of literary study. And yes. The report lumps a number of things under this heading, um, one of which is to include the role of literary study, literary criticism and literary theory how different approaches and ways of reading impact on what and how we read, how students value the study of literature, and so on. And I was struck, actually, we recently had um, an Ofsted inspection, and the English department inevitably was picked for a deep dive. And yes. we were studying, what were we studying? Well, we were teaching year eight students, Antigone. Yes. And we were reading it in the unabridged Fagel's translation, which I think is a fantastic text. And the inspector who was charged with giving us the once over was very amenable. 
indeed, and was asking us about at what point in the curriculum we start talking about literary theory explicitly with our students. And we, mm. we said, well, actually, we start in year seven. Yes. We start with our origins and myths unit mm. about how English has developed from you know, classical patterns. We then take it through into year eight as we explore Antigone, struggle with Creon and the patriarchal state. And then it goes from there. I said, clearly, we don't we don't talk to them about you know, anything you'd expect to find on a A-level philosophy syllabus. But we, we yeah. do mention that, you know, the conflict between different genders in society has a name. The, the way in which creation is treated in Genesis or indeed in uh, mythology from around the world has a kind of connection to environmentalism. So I think there are ways we can bring theory in that's relevant and truthful, even for those kind of younger students down the curriculum. I agree. And I think it's saying, you know, often that we will talk about, um, you know, well, some people will will interpret this as, um, I think it's a very, it has to be done very sensitively because um, as somebody who's marked exams, sometimes when you get to key GCSE marking, you sometimes see an inappropriate uh, over application of, of literary theory, literary theory, you know, statements about uh, X's, this is a Marxist approach because, um, and I think it's a lack of perhaps nuance in the teaching, whereas I do think it's important for students to say, well, some people would view this as this, and so other people would criticism and might be like, and, and sometimes what, what we've done is introduce maybe single sentence statements about characters and ask the students to discuss them and, and what they think, you know, particularly around, uh, for me, it's the portray, you know, how we interpret Lady Macbeth and there's some very facile interpretations that we can have and there's some more nuanced interpretations and, and how we get students to um, understand those so that they can co come to their own critical opinion. But it's about, so I think it's about seeding it as you go through about um, at the time this may have been received as this uh, a view now might be you know that particularly interrogating things around patriarchy I think is really important uh, for young people. I suppose of course that brings us back again to this challenge of non-linearity in the yes. way we like to think about our discipline and the way in which we like to think about forming the capacity of students to read text in their own imaginative ways yes i think i think we can look at we can look at progression and we can look at building like deeper critical engagement with text and the expansion of pupils ability to to write analytically about text or to to read text in different ways we obviously want to expose students to texts of increasing vocabulary complexity or narrative complexity or increasing complexity of viewpoint um, but I think a curriculum can't be like some perhaps maths or science where, you know, you, you can't move to one building block unless you've got another building block below that. I think English, we can, there's ways of putting the blocks together. That's much more about schema and patterns than perhaps it is from one linear point to the next. But I think, yeah. it's that, I think it's really important that as a department, you sit down and you discuss what that is and, and where all the how will the knowledge links together and what's and what we do want as an essential precursor to something that they do later on yeah i was just going to say that i tend to view our english curriculum if we're doing it right as a 
a pilgrimage towards understanding rather than a route march. Absolutely, I completely agree with you. And I think we're just about out of time, Mary. So it's been yes. fantastic discussing this complex document, which in itself has facilitated a number of different interpretations with you this evening. I hope you've enjoyed being on the air with us tonight. It's been an absolute privilege and um, it's it's always lovely to be able to talk about one subject and 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 the decisions that we that we we make as individuals and in departments and share that with other people and and I'd be interested to see what sort of feedback or responses we get to the program and and what people think of the research review as well. Yeah, we'd love to get your thoughts on how this this review takes life in your department perhaps once we move into the next academic year that'd be really interesting to see mm. what challenges have actually been thrown up by being back in the classroom with the students in front of us thank you very much mary oh thank you very much christopher thank you for being it's been a, a pleasure to be to be your guest on the show thank you for asking me Thank you and enjoy your holiday. I will do. Thank you very much. Thank you. Goodbye. And so we've reached the end of this month's Late Show, in which I hope we have helped you gain some understanding of the debates around the Ofsted English Subject Review and given you some ideas for how you might address some of its themes in your schools, departments and classrooms in September. I hope Mary's thoughts have prompted you to think a bit more about the English curriculum you wish your students to receive and the ways in which you might deliver it. Thank you again to Mary Hind-Portley for joining us on Teachers Talk Radio tonight. Thanks to everyone who has tuned in and texted the show. We've had a couple of texts in. We've got more great shows lined up for you in the coming week on Teachers Talk Radio, both on Podbean and on Twitter Spaces. So do check out the schedule on www.ttradio.org to make sure you're up to date with the holiday pattern and have spent some time getting to know our new hosts, Mark Cratchley and Jeff Pedley. Remember, you can download and catch up with every Teachers Talk Radio show on the website's Listen Again facility, with shows on an ever-increasing range of topics to inform, inspire and entertain. That's it from me for this month, so thank you for listening. Enjoy your summer holiday, whether you are travelling to somewhere exotic, taking a well-deserved staycation or simply re-familiarising yourself with family and friends. And we will speak again in August. Goodbye. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.